welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. Diversity is one of those central concepts that is all but taken for granted as a good and desirable quality in American social life. As an ideal, it's almost untouchable. However, as Professor Ellen Berry explains, the actual institutions and practices designed to promote diversity can sometimes obscure real inequalities and limit the ways that we think about social justice. Her new book, The Enigma of Diversity, The Language of Race, and the Limits of Racial Justice, chronicles three cases, one at a university, one in a neighborhood, and one at a large corporation that demonstrates some of the problems that the idealization of diversity raises for minorities in America today. Ellen Barry, welcome to Office Hours. It's great to be here. Uh, before we get into the particulars of your three cases, I'd like to just start by talking about one of the major themes that ties your book together. Um, you're writing a lot about diversity, and you say that diversity is really both a halo and a haze. Could you tell us about what you mean by that? Yeah. So my book is about diversity as a symbol and how that symbol gets taken up in rhetoric, how it gets taken up in organizational and political activity. And so this is different than the ways that scholars usually write about diversity. I mean, there are exceptions, but diversity usually gets treated as a way to describe different demographic groups, or it's just a word that means variety and heterogeneity. So from the outset here, it's important to, that, to understand that I'm approaching diversity as a symbol. Um, and then how do I analyze it as a symbol? Well, the book is about symbolic politics. And symbolic politics is the exercise of power through ideas. So power gets exercised through the control of resources like money, like dollars, and power gets exercised through the ability to set agendas. And then there's a th what Stephen Luke's calls the third face of power, which is the ability to define what is normal, what is desirable, what's valuable. And diversity is, is politics are at that, are at that level. So we sh I want readers and, and listeners to think about diversity as this symbol get, that's get taken up by people with, in positions of power, like university presidents, CEOs, politicians, and it becomes a framework for these leaders to define the world, to make sense of what's happening. And throughout history, diversity has been primarily used to refer to race and specifically to the integration of people of color, usually black people, into white settings. So it's part of symbolic politics, then diversity enables these leaders to designate the meaning in terms of integration and to do that in ways that really in many work to their advantage. So this gets us back to your question, um, the halo and the haze of diversity. So for many people in many organizational settings like university, like universities, the symbol of diversity gets treated as something that's unquestionably good. I mean, who is going to say that they're against diversity? Mm -hmm. So I think Ann Coulter is on the record of saying that, but for the most part, that's a very, <laughs> it's a very marginal position. Uh, 
that at least rhetorically people will say we want diversity in our um, in our communities and our friendships. And there was a great survey that was done by um, uh, Doug Hartman and other folks at University of Minnesota that found this. It was you know more than ninety percent of the population said they wanted diversity in their friendships and where they lived. So this is the halo of diversity, and it's especially significant that white people seem to be on board with diversity. If, you know, we're talking about diversity as, a, as an issue of race and racial integration, um, you know, there's a satirical blog called stuff that, stuff that White People Like, and diversity on the blog is near the top of that list. So we have the halo. This is the halo. And then there's the haze. And that's really, the haze is what really motivates the book, that, you know, it's not really clear what these leaders are doing when they take on diversity as a value. And it's not clear what they are actually achieving when they are pursuing diversity. So that halo and haze, you know, turn diversity into an enigma. And that's the title of the book. They make diversity this puzzle that, that the book tries to unravel in order to understand pluralism and race and inequality in the United States today. Mm-hmm. So to get into that um, enigma empirically, you research... Um, jumps off from sort of three case studies. But like you say, right, unlike other projects that might be looking at demographic or social, even legal dynamics of race in the United States, you're really interested in the ways that our culture itself gives meaning to race. But like looking at culture can be really hard to do. So could you tell us a bit about how that interest in culture shaped your research design? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So So the book is interpretive, and by that I mean that it's focusing on how people make meaning of the world around them. It's very much part of the broader cultural turn in sociology, which has said we're going to take seriously meaning. We're going to take seriously how people make sense of the world around them, how that defines their actions. Um, At the same time, the book is very much in line with the turn to relational research in sociology. Uh, And so what does that mean? Um, Relational research takes as its point of analysis a process. And so this is, I like to talk in contrast, so you're going to hear me do this. This is different than sociological research that makes its center of analysis a more static group or place or, or policy. Um, the book is looking at a process, and that process is the organizational production of diversity. How do organizations and, and organizations create diversity as a value and put it into practice? Hmm. And you know, in line with the relational turn, and also in line with you know a lot of the tradition of ethnography and sociology and some of the anthropology, it's the idea here is that we need to put meaning making into its context to look at the proximate influences of social dynamics and institutional conditions and power and interests. And and so this is also, as a point of contrast, different than a cultural sociology that looks primarily at meanings. So like an analysis of you know, representations of race in sports magazines. That's an approach that doesn't look so much at context, it looks at the meanings themselves. And so my approach is to say, if we're going to understand meaning, we have to look at the people and places and the ways they use meaning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's start at maybe the first place that you visit in the book, um, which is the University of Michigan. 
where you note that the administration seems to have shifted its rationale for affirmative action admissions programs in recent years. Um, you write that the University of Michigan has long prided itself on student diversity, but you also show how its public-facing defense of those programs has changed in order to stress the benefits of racial diversity for all students, right? not just students of color. So how did that shift come about and what problems has it created? This is such an important issue, um, uh, and so I'm. I was happy to. See, I'm happy that you're asking about it. And the only way to really answer the question is to talk about law and to talk about history. Mm-hmm. So stick with me through that. So, <laughs> so elite universities began to do affirmative action in the 1960s, and um, since then and to this day, it's um, a fairly modest practice. <clears throat> it's a proactive way for a university to bring in more students of color, but to into these um, what have been very, ex, you know, exclusively white institutions. Um, affirmative action has been a way to do integration without really changing how most admissions works, because most admissions is a, gives favoritism to students who are affluent and who are white through, the, you know, the use of test scores and grade point average and high tuition rates. So, so that's, I like to also just kind of slip in always that my definition of affirmative action, because often people don't know that it's no policy in this case in universities that was, has the objective of opening up opportunities for students of color. Hmm. So that early rationale for affirmative action when it got adopted in the 60s, and Michigan was one of these first universities that adopted it, adopted it was that we needed to take race into consideration when making admissions decisions in order to remedy disadvantage. That it would be a way to create opportunities for minorities. And this was you know, a broader language that had some recognition in law, um, particularly starting in the 1970s, that, um, that, that racial inequality exists in society is a problem and that institutions have a responsibility to address it primarily for the benefit of people of color. So kind of working our way through history, a movement against affirmative action began to form in the 70s. And at first, the argument was one based on kind of the supremacy of white people. But very soon, that movement switched to a framing of colorblindness. And this may be something that uh, folks have heard about or read about before. This is a really important claim um, that any consider of race, any consideration of race um, when making decisions um, even if the goal is to remedy inequality, um, that that consideration of race is discriminatory and therefore illegal. This is the colorblind position. Um, and it's grounded in legal doctrine. And it very much you know, sort of appropriates and perverts the goals of the civil rights movement activists of the 50s and 60s. But this is, and this still today is the primary argument against affirmative action, that we need our policies to be colorblind. If they're not, they're discriminatory. So where does diversity come into this story? We see this affirmative action movement sort of developing against, uh, anti-affirmative action movement developing. So 1978, there was this major Supreme Court case, Bakke versus the Regents of the University of California. And this challenged an affirmative action program at the um, University of California, Davis. So it was a very complicated case, but kind of to boil it all down, when the Supreme Court made its decisions, four of the justices said, took the colorblind argument and said, you can, 
affirmative action is never constitutional. And then four other justices said that affirmative action is justified and it's an important way to remedy remedy inequality. And then the ninth justice, Lewis Powell, uh, wrote a separate opinion, nobody else signed on to this opinion, only him, where he said affirmative action is valuable and important when the goal is diversity. And the idea here is that affirmative action brings students of color to campus and those students of color enhance the, the learning experience for everyone. Just in the same, they are part of the diversity in the same way that a farm boy from, from Idaho is, is part of, an important part of diversity. So for universities that wanted to do affirmative action, Powell's opinion was the safest one to follow because mm-hmm. it said you could do affirmative action, but under these kind of more narrow guidelines, and they jumped on that language. Right, under the halo of diversity. Exactly, exactly. And there was, you know, real constraints. They didn't have, you know, other other viable options if they needed, because they needed to signal that they were abiding by law. Uh, and so, you know, Michigan was one of those universities and it took on diversity, you know, not just as a kind of goal for admissions, but as an identity for the university. And through the 80s and especially by the 90s, Michigan, you know, the leaders of the university identified the university as a place of excellence and diversity, that we can do both of these things at once. And it kept doing affirmative action, and affirmative action proved to to be very effective. Um, By the mid-1990s, the percentage of students of color was up to 25% of students on campus, which was a huge change from 30 years earlier. And the research shows that um, affirmative action was instrumental in getting those those numbers up. So so then let me bring that story to the present. Mm -hmm. What happened in the late 1990s is the affirmative, anti-affirmative action movement was gaining a lot of power. And it went after Michigan and filed these two um, major legal cases that went to the Supreme Court, um, Gratz and Gruder. And, uh, and these were the most important cases since sound affirmative action since, since Bakke. And Michigan mounted this very vigorous defense um, of affirmative action, and it built on Powell's opinion um, and built on what you know, get, now gets called the diversity rationale, that having um, students of different racial backgrounds learning together has this instrumental payoff where it's better for the learning environment for everyone. So, so think about this for a moment. This is different than that message about remedying inequality, mm. where the idea there is that we're doing something to to help people of color improve their life circumstances, versus we're doing something where even white people are going to be better off with with diversity. So, the university didn't have another choice. I mean, the diver- diversity rationale was the legally sound and viable argument that they could make. Um, but you know, this gets you know kind of into the the, the last piece of the story I want to hit on, which is that um, uh, this was really significant that Michigan fought this fight and won this fight. So this was a huge victory that, you know, Michigan essentially saved affirmative action, that it made it possible for universities to do affirmative action um, as long as there wasn't a state level ban on the practice. Um, and it's fighting, you know, fighting for diversity was how it, how it did that. But then, you know, that language of diversity really cuts off our imagination and our ability to understand the depth of the problems that we face in terms of doing something about racial inequality and and white privilege and um, and 
the, the challenges that, that are entailed and really having those difficult conversations. Right. So, so the circumstances surrounding your second case now, um, this is a neighborhood uh, rather than a university, the neighborhood of Rogers Park in Chicago. Um, those circumstances are obviously somewhat different. Um, yet, you also show how diversity has been deployed by residents and developers there, much in the same way that it's been deployed at the University of Michigan and other universities. So what about Rogers Park mirrored your first case? The Rogers Park case is about the community politics of gentrification and low-income housing. So it's unique from Michigan that there's not a single bureaucracy. It's best to think of it as a field of organizational activity where you have developers and local politicians and activists and social service groups kind of most of them saying, you know, we believe that Rogers Park is one of the most diverse neighborhoods in Chicago. And if you're from Chicago, if you know the neighborhood, you've heard that line before. Um, and so there's this pretty widespread agreement about that. Um, but then if you kind of dig down in practice, you see that these groups have really different agendas for diversity. So that's kind of the Rogers Park picture. So what makes it similar to Michigan? Because you'd think at first kind of what do these places have in common? And, and there, there are three things that I want to highlight. So one of them is the historical story, which I touched on before, which is that, you know, diversity has been part of this cultural top-down response by leaders to the movement of African Americans into white settings. And just as that was true at Michigan and Rogers Park, the neighborhood was 99% white in the 1960s when you know Martin Luther King came to to Chicago to fight um, for against housing discrimination in Chicago. Local local leaders in Rogers Park got up and got up and said, "We believe in diversity." So diversity is, in that in other places as well. Kind of the pro-integration neighborhood movements um, used some of that language of diversity. So there's this common history there. Um, another point in common between the cases is that diversity gets mobilized by people in these positions of power to manage integration. Mm. And um, one of the kind of there's an interesting common theme, and this is in, the, in my third case study as well, of the corporation, which is that um, I saw decision makers being supportive of some minorities. Of that, I saw decision makers being, you know, what I write about is um, as being selectively inclusive. So, in the name of diversity, I'd see politicians, university administrators, kind of affirm the idea that we would have um, people of color, women, sometimes gay, lesbian, bisexual, and um, and transgender individuals, sometimes religious minorities, um, that they'd be visible, that they'd be upwardly mo- mobile. But right. these were kind of selectively chosen, selectively spotlighted people who who kind of fit the typecast of desirable diversity. And and you you read you know um, seen a brochure for a college where you have kind of the classic image of students sitting in a circle around a professor on a lawn, and it's invariably students of different racial backgrounds. Or if you see kind of advertisements for a neighborhood festival, and you see people of different racial backgrounds kind of celebrating or playing music together. This are, these are kind of that, that selective inclusion. These are the people of color who kind of ultimately, when it comes down to it, uh, who are conducive to leaders' ag- broad, broader agendas that have really nothing to do with integration, like you know, um, competing in the market for 
uh, competitive students or in Rogers Park in terms of invest in attracting investment dollars in this period of, of neoliberal market pressures. Uh, so, so, so both these places you're seeing this emphasis on the, on selective desirable minorities. Right. And uh, so at the, in the third case, um, that you cover, you call this pushing against the glass ceiling or mm-hmm. ignoring dirty floors, right? Um, this is at a, a business rather than a, a neighborhood. Um, this is an organization that you so pseudonymously call the Star Corporation. Um, could you say a little bit more about that phrase, pushing against the glass ceiling while, while ignoring dirty floors and how it applied in that third case? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so Star is this multinational Fortune 500 company that makes consumer products and um, many of us have, have bought these or used them ourselves. Uh, and it's a company um, at this point that is majority of white, but has um, women and people of color represented kind of at all levels of the organization. And I did, in all these cases, I did ethnographic research and historical research. And, and I spent about a year in STARS headquarters looking at diversity management. And, you know, what you get when you read the diversity management textbooks, that a lot of that comes out of the trade industry, or when you read what sociologists and organizational scholars write about diversity management, um, there's uh, one topic that never came up that I saw when I was uh, never, that doesn't come up in that literature, at least to my knowledge, but that I saw when I was on the ground. And this was this assumption that diversity matters uh, just really at the top of the corporate ladder, but not elsewhere in the organization. Hmm. So at Star, you know, when I, the diversity trainings, the programs, the networking groups, these were for professionals and administrators and managers. They were not for the people who clean the bathrooms or the people who are packing boxes on the factory, factory line. And you know the the clearest indication of this was that the company kept metrics on diversity, which is a quite sophisticated um, practice where they they kept track and they internally reported the percentage of women and people of color at different levels of the organization. But they only did this for the top third of the company. So even when mm-hmm. people talked about the diversity numbers, they were they were leaving out two thirds of the two thirds of the workforce. That's so, very interesting. And this is significant, right? Because here we see diversity management is doing the division of labor. It becomes complicit in this broader move to degrade lower level workers, to make them invisible. And that's, you know, a piece of the story here is how diversity is taken up in these neoliberal agendas and, and contributes to problems of class inequality. Hmm. Okay, so you you end the book by making a major distinction between this movement to use diversity, the halo of diversity, and a critique of privilege that actually takes the experience of inclusion very seriously. So to wrap up, what does that distinction look like, and how can it lead to a more powerful movement toward racial justice? Okay. So we can think of the diversity movement in many ways as a public relations move as this kind of top-down move by organizational and political leaders that um, in some ways has helped to make the ideas of pluralism and racial integration more broadly appealing. So that's not insignificant, especially if we're concerned about problems of racial inequality, um, especially insofar as it helps to get some buy-in from white people. Uh, But in most of the circumstances that I studied and that 
I know of beyond my three cases, that this has been a top-down move that really cuts off a more incisive, difficult conversations about who has privilege and at what cost. Uh, so, And it's also a movement that hasn't um, really rallied behind broad-based policies that get at the roots of inequality or the gaps between the rich and poor. So there, there are effective policies like affirmative action and college admissions that get justified in the name of diversity, but even those policies tend to be tacked on to broader systems and structures and cultures that give unfair advantages to white people and wealthy people at the expense of other groups. Uh, so if we're thinking about kind of, as you asked, kind of a more powerful movement toward racial justice, I'd say a few things for that. I mean, one of them, and I'm not the first to say say these things, one of them is that movement needs to put at the forefront both problems of minority disadvantage and poverty and problems of white and wealth privilege. Uh, that'd be a piece of it. Another piece is that people from marginalized groups who share an objective of addressing inequality need to be at the table, at the head of the table, need to be having a say in setting the the agenda um, I think there needs to be some real grappling with what are rights, equal rights, and how do they matter right now? Because a lot of the story of diversity, and this was in my, with my university case and my neighborhood case, is that a rhetoric and a concern with equal rights has really dropped out of the progressive agenda, even though that is very important to many um, people of color. And then the last piece of this movement, if I get to sort of imagine what this movement um, uh can look like is that um, it, one of the things I've learned from studying the diversity movement is that uniting symbolism is so important for tackling these very thorny problems. And that framework of civil rights seems to have lost much of its progressive punch, you know, in the era of anti-affirmative action. Um, and diversity's got all these limitations that we've talked about. So coming up with that kind of uniting symbolism is a task for, for the movement to figure out. Well, the book is called The Enigma of Diversity, The Language of Race and the Limits of Racial Justice. Ellen Berry, thank you so much for stopping by Office Hours. It's been such a treat to be here. Thank you. Thank you.